Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hey, 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 I was going to do that Gomer thing like we did on Patreon, but I thought, nah, I don't think I'll do that this time. Once is enough. <laughs> Once is enough. Hey, all of you guys, players, playwrights, do-do-dets, amigos, amigas, everybody out there in between, welcome back. This is going to be episode 108 of Game of Crimes. Again, the 108th attempt to silence us, and it has not worked. <laughs> We're back. And you know, I've been trying to silence Morgan now for over two years, and I'm still unsuccessful. Two years, dude. Yeah, that's why you're with DEA. Uh, you're used to long-term investigations. Yeah, Don't expect anything. Don't expect anything. Hey, guys, welcome back. Hey, we're going to have some fun. This is going to be a great episode. But before we get started, as always, let's talk about a couple of housekeeping things. Hit those apples and Spotify, those five stars. Helps us out a lot. It really does. Gives us ideas of what to do, what not to do. And we appreciate your candid comments. So uh, just keep it up. Also head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. You're going to want to head there this time when we talk about our next guest. We're going to have some books and some video. So that'll be cool. Uh, plus, you know, uh, other neat things that are happening. Also follow us on that thing called social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. And make sure you go to Game of Crimes fans. Just type it at the search bar, answer a couple questions, and our favorite mafia queen, the velvet glove with the iron fist, will deem you worthy or not of entry. And hey, look, man, we got a great little, uh, great little cadre of uh, cut-ups uh, behind the, the the scenes there. You got to come and check that out. There's always something funny going on there. I finally saw the hillbilly remark. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how you got a picture of me and my brothers, and, my, and they might be my cousins, and one of them might even be an uncle. <laughs> And all from the same father. Okay. Family tree, straight Family as an tree, arrow. straight up, man. <laughs> but that's what they always talk about. We get, and actually, quite quite frankly, folks, not only do we get some of the good memes, but some of our small town police bloggers, some of our stories and guest suggestions have come from you guys there. So Absolutely. we appreciate it very much. So yeah. just type in Game of Crimes fans on Facebook, answer a couple questions, just get close and we'll deem you worthy of entry. Anyway, also head on over to Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We just got through reviewing our case of the month. We took a look on the Long Island serial killer case. Um, and actually, we got some good feedback. Fred Nicolosi, even Sandy Salvato, because uh, she does a lot of stuff on the financial side. We were talking about smurfing and currency transaction reports, suspicious activity reports. Mm -hmm. And guys, one one observation we made, and that's why you got to join patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Nobody gets this stuff right. When you look at all of these people that do all of these things, nobody gets it right. Nobody says, oh, I know who it is. No, you don't. <laughs> Nobody was even looking at this guy. No, he was not on anybody's bingo card. Uh, so, no, sorry, guys. But anyway, but we got some good stuff coming up. We've got 911, what's your emergency? We've got um, uh, uh, You Can't Make This Shit Up, which that was a really good one. Murph, I think that's the hardest you've laughed on an episode for a while. <laughs> that was the best one we've done so far. But And we also have our Q&A, our monthly Q&A, where you can ask us anything. We haven't turned down a single question yet. 
we've had to spread some of them over, and you know who I'm talking about, Alex Collins. So <laughs> we <laughs> had to do names, the installment. Initial, yeah. We won't mention his name, but his initials are Alex Collins. Yeah, it's like Sears, and you know the layaway plan. We've had to do the installment plan, but we answer every question. So, but just head on over to their Patreon.com/slash Game of Crimes. We've got as much or more content there as we do on our free side. So, and Alex, keep the questions coming. Keep them coming, bro. All right. Now, remember, folks, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things to to, uh, good people. Uh, Let me try that again. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously. But as you can tell already, what? Yeah, we never take ourselves serious. (laughs) And one of the ways we don't take ourselves serious is uh, we got this little thing that always comes at a certain time in the episode. And guess what time it is, Murph? It's time for Small Town Police Blotter. Who knows that one? Oh, I remember that when I was a kid. Rawhide. No, Rawhide is rolling, rolling, rolling. Bonanza. Oh, there you go. Little Joe and Hoss. Hoss. Lord Green, who then became Commander Adama on... Oh, uh, gosh, I just, I just can't believe uh spaced out the name of that. Go ahead and make fun of me. That's all right. That's it. Well, I've got so much stuff in my head, too. Uh, yours <laughs> is easy. Just it, it gets lonely up there. If you get a damn haircut, you could probably function better, you know? Battlestar Galactica. That's what it was. Anyway, okay. Murph, what's the most violent thing you've ever been assaulted by? Uh, I guess a gun and a knife. Yeah. Well, good thing you weren't hanging around this lady, Murph. You would have. This would have been a. This would have been a first for you. Mm-hmm. It's in Florida. Yay, Florida! St. Pete Beach, population eight thousand three hundred seventy-nine. Salute. So this lady, Sarah Ann Cochera, lives with her boyfriend. She's forty-six. He is in his sixties somewhere. Um, at his condo just down Gulf Boulevard from Rick's. So they were at Rick's, and uh, they got into a verbal dispute. Mm-hmm. And uh, she decided, I've had enough of this shit. Mm-hmm. So she threw, I don't know Rick's, but I don't know if this would be a crime or uh, you just did somebody a favor. But she threw the most heinous of things you can throw inside a Mexican restaurant. Queso. Burrito. <laughs> she threw a burrito at this man. It did not strike the man with who she was having a conver- or quarrel. Instead, the Mexican delicacy hit the victim in the face. <laughs> now, we don't know whether he was injured by the burrito, whether hot sauce got into his eyes and he had to have his eyes irrigated. Uh, we don't know the extent of his injuries. However, she departed the restaurant before cops arrived, but she remained nearby and here, shocker, was not cooperative with deputies. <laughs> Why would you waste a good burrito? Damn, that's what I mean. But now, here, but here's the thing. Now, she was charged with disorderly conduct, a misdemeanor booked into county jail. However, guess what? The previous month, she was arrested for punching her 66-year-old boyfriend. 21-year age difference. Might be a clue there, folks. Either that or he's got money. I think I'm, I'm betting on the fact he's got money. Sugar daddy. Uh, sugar daddy. Uh, so uh, she punched him in the face, but he declined to uh, prosecute. Uh, he said, you know, he asked the count be dropped. So <laughs> Now, the person that got hit with the burrito wasn't him, right? It was somebody no. else. He was an innocent, innocent bystander, bystander, probably having queso, and was assaulted. Felony assault with the burrito. That's a fab. Hey, you know what? You can screw with me over a lot of things, but don't screw with me about my food. Now, you toss a burrito at me. It's on. All right. <laughs> Hey, I decided to go to Montana for this one. All right. What's rule number one on Game of Crimes, Murph? Don't do meth. And if you do meth, don't call 911. (laughs) (laughs) A Montana woman called 911, Murph, not only to say 
that she had an issue with meth. She purchased some bad meth, and it left a bad taste in her mouth. Now, in Great Falls, she's an expert. She knows about this. Why? Because she injects every day at 9, 11, and 3 p.m. So she knows her meth. So she called up to say she was having a bad reaction to meth. So um, she told them that she believed she got some bad meth. Uh, she was vomiting, tingling tongue, bad taste in her mouth. So they get there. Um, she, she says, hey, I do meth three times a day. I'm an expert about this stuff. Um, <laughs> she purchased it the night before. Now, while speaking with them, now the police department, being a service-oriented police department, they did a solid for her. Mm -hmm. um, she still had some meth inside her bra. So they, you know, they, she provided it to them and they tested it for her. Mm -hmm. And guess what, Murph? It tested positive. Tested positive for meth. And I guess now she's going to jail for possession. Arrested on felony narcotics possession charge, which carries a maximum sentence of five years in prison. She also had separate warrants for her arrest. So kill two birds with one stone. <laughs> and an uh, pending charge of felonious stupidity. Oh, no, no, no. This next one is felonious stupidity. <laughs> okay. It's an Arizona man who actually has a tie into Montana. So there's a tie to the previous case. All right. Um, he sent explicit messages and photos to a 16-year-old girl. Oh, jeez. Come on, man. Now, but it's the backstory, Murph. So Joshua Hilliard uh, sent nude photos to a teenager. He was mentoring through a local outreach program. And what qualified this guy to be in the local outreach program and be a mentor? Uh, he's currently being supervised by Arizona probation officials in connection with prior felony convictions in Montana and Wyoming, including burglary and theft. And in 2015, guess what he was convicted of uh, for possession of in Wyoming? Meth. Meth. His sentence in both cases included a probation component that was transferred to Arizona. So here's a guy with convictions for meth, burglary, and theft, allowed to be a mentor in an outreach program. So he was arrested during a meeting. Now, how did they prove that in the town of Cottonwood, population 12,029, salute. salute, a central Arizona city, how did they prove that he was actually the person in the nude photos? <laughs> I can think of a lot of comments, but I'm not going to. It was a tattoo. Oh, down there? Fun size. Tattooed on his <laughs> appendage. <laughs> now, we don't know. We can neither confirm nor deny it was fun size, actually, or whether that was, you know, federal offenses to, you know, uh, deceptive advertising. I believe it might have been deceptive advertising. You know, the old bait and switch. <laughs> oh, let's just move on. <laughs> He thought it was okay because in Montana, the age of consent is 16, but dude. Well, I mean, if it was... Uh, uh, <laughs> Guess who's getting the job to photograph the evidence, Murph? Guess who's oh, getting that job? Yeah, I, hey, rookie. Come here, if rookie. It, if it was a real fun size, it might have been tattooed something like Eat at Joe's, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah, uh, USMC, United States Marine Corps, Camp Pendleton, California. Uh, there's an old military. Anyway, we have digressed. Boy, oh, have we. Anyway, oh. he was... Uh, but. Somehow they proved it, so I'm sure there is an evidence somewhere now. All we have to do is see if the evidence will stand up in court. Oh, but I'm, well, goodbye. <laughs> or he was let go for lack of evidence. I know uh, these are old jokes. We don't care. We apologize to our guest today. But we'll apologize. Apologize. Thank you very much. Hey, well, guess what? Here's something we don't have to apologize for, and it is our next guest. Comes to oh, us yeah. courtesy of the Sarge. Mr. Patrick Sorry. O'Donnell from Cops and Writers Podcast. No, it's Patrick O'Connell. I renamed him. He's legally changed his name now because after we're so, we're so immensely popular, nobody knew him by Patrick O'Donnell anymore. So it's Patrick O'Connell. Is it really? No, I'm kidding you. 
had a tough workout at the gym this morning. I'm about, I'm about to fall out of my chair here. Nick just whipped my butt today. <laughs> I job, can't Nick. believe you fell. Really? Really? <laughs> I'm tired. It's been a tough week. You also owe me 500 bucks, but I'll get that from you later. You can pay <sighs> me. Well, so the Sarge set us up with this guy, Murph. So uh, CBA. Uh, they're CBD. Some of you folks out there are into that. No, this is CBA, Certified Badass. Yeah, you're not kidding. I've been excited to bring this guy on. Uh, after I, after Patrick told us about him, I got his book, Hidden War. John Norris, N-O-R-E-S. You've got to check this guy out because this is what I love most about uh, our interview with John. He addresses the issue of how marijuana legalization really isn't, you know, everybody thought, well, hey, if we if we legalize this, then uh, we'll knock the Mexican cartels out. Nothing could be a bigger crock of crap. I mean, I, you you just wait till you hear the the statistics he's got here, and the, and the remember how California's been going through this water drought for years. Yep. Wait till you hear the statistics. We're not talking about the loss of millions of gallons of water. We're talking about the loss of billions, billions of gallons of water in California that could have been used for for. Drinking water in the state. And the environmental damage. I mean, oh that's the other. Gosh. People forget, you know, farmers, other folks like that, foresters, ranchers, they're good stewards of the land. These yep. people don't care. And if anybody thought, here's the other thing John brings. He brings facts. It just doesn't bring opinion. He brings yep. facts. Yep. And for all of you who thought that by legalizing, guys, don't get us wrong. We're going to get people yell at us. All we're saying is if you thought legalizing marijuana was going to get rid of the illegal mm-hmm. um, stuff. Uh, I think you need to listen to this episode and then make your own decision. Do your own research. But I'm telling you, man. Yeah. And, we, and we'll and we probably have another comment or two on the outro here. But, you know, we want you to hear from John first. We don't want to spoil anything. This is one of the best interviews we've ever done. John, I mean, you're a, you're a stud. You're a hero. And even in retirement, he's continued to be a stud. You know, this is a guy who was out running Ironman contests in the freaking Baja heat. He's done some stupid shit, like going out into the middle of the woods by himself without a radio. But we can't, we don't want to tell you anymore, right? Because yeah. we can't tell you that until I ask Murph, the penultimate, ultimate, illuminating question. Murph, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all? The John Norris version of Game of Crimes. I, folks, this is one of my best, our, one of my favorite interviews. So get in, sit down, really shut up and listen to John. Hold on. Here we go. Welcome all of you people out there we call players, playerettes, doo-doo-dets, amigos, amigas, everybody in between. Welcome to the next great episode of Game of Crimes. I am here with my partner in crime, but look, we got a special guest because he's special for a couple things. Number one, you are the first, you will be the first person, we don't want to give it away yet in this particular discipline, but number two, you have come highly recommended by one of our favorite players, a dude out there named Steven, not Seagal Siegel, who uh, his his uh, buddy Wayne which I believe you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So oh, yeah. this is John Norris. Anyway, we, we have to do something special. I want you to hear about this. We're going to introduce you. So uh, Stephen is wanting us to have you introduce us to Wayne to bring him on because Wayne, uh, Stephen lost one of his partners that was out of the academy that was uh, going through with Wayne. So one of our players out there knows something. So, but hey, but let's skip all of this stuff and we'll get to the good stuff. Now wait, you have uh, to tell us. Wait, what? We got we to give a shout out to uh, Patrick O'Donnell too. Cause uh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the Sarge. Yeah. The Sarge. Welcome. Hey, the Sarge, Milwaukee. Eh? Absolutely. So Cops by the way, writers. 
and and well, and John, tell us how to officially pronounce your last name. Is it like Norris and Snores, or is it Norris like Chuck Norris, or how do you pronounce that? It, it's Norris like Uncle Chuck, but the other spelling. Yeah, instead of N O R R I S, it's N O R E S. But you had it right on the second run there, Morgan. Like Perfect, <laughs> Uncle Chuck, Uncle Chuck, Uncle I like Chuck. It. Yeah, I stopped Chuck Norris one time. He let me off with a warning. Uh, (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) No, this is good stuff because I was actually speaking to Patrick O'Donnell. I was going to look him up. I was up in Milwaukee recently, but man, I I had a short time there. And the time I was up there, those smoke from Canada. uh, I mean, I've got a picture. It looks like the surface of Mars. I took a picture of the sun. It looks like the surface of Mars. But anyway, John uh, Norris, uh, favorite uncle is Chuck Norris. Hey, look, first of all, welcome. This is going to be fun. We've got your book, too. We also want to talk about your book. You've got a tremendous book out. It's called Hidden War, How Special Operations Game Wardens Are Reclaiming America's Wildlands from the Drug Cartels. So, well, you are the—well, actually, he's the second game warden, right? Because Kevin yeah. Holland qualifies as a, he as did. a game warden. Yeah, He did. And I just want, I just want to say, I've, I've been really excited for this interview because once, uh, once Patrick told us about you, I got your book and read it, and there's so much stuff in there— that we're going to try and cram in today, but most right. most importantly, and I'd, I'd already mentioned this to you and Morgan as well, is is the decimation of what happens from all these illegal activities. So we'll save that for later in the interview. But that is so freaking important, and it's going to be an eye opener for everybody out there, especially people who think marijuana is not a big deal that the Mexicans are going to get out of it because we legalized it. Just wait till we get into this shit. It's it's yeah. just good stuff. Yeah, and just just the way um, um, you know. Well, well, we'll talk about other things anyway. So, John, let's 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 talk about you as we do with everybody. Colson Ostra, thing of ours. How'd you get started in this thing of ours? We call law enforcement. By the way, why did you pick game warden? I mean, were you like just rafting down the river one day, popping a couple of Bud Lights, and you decided, hey, I want to do something? Well, maybe a Corona. I'm sorry, Bud Light. PBR, <laughs> PBRs, brother. PBR. Yeah, it was. It, it's quite an interesting story and one that wasn't really in the game plan. You know, growing up. But first of all, guys, I want to say thanks for uh, having me on the show and, and all you guys are doing and have done and continue to do. You know, and I know we've all had um, pretty exciting and blessed operational careers, but, you know, I always say the pen is mightier than the sword now, right? And now we're out on podcast formats. I mean, I co-host two podcasts myself, Warden's Watch, with my co-host Wayne Saunders, retired lieutenant New Hampshire, and the Thin Green Line, and never anticipated doing that upon retirement, you know, and look how awesome it is to get this message out, speak freely. We're not under any political or, you know, state by state gag order, so to speak. And uh, I'm really honored to be on today and I love your platform and, and thanks for all you're doing. But yeah, Morgan, to your question, the whole game warden thing was, it was kind of a little bit of divine intervention and I'm going to get to that and try to keep it as brief as possible. But I grew up in a conservation-oriented family. My grandfather was career Navy. He actually, right after going to basic, he was deployed on a, on a cruiser in Pearl Harbor when we got hammered in Pearl Harbor back on that fateful day. Did 20 years in the Navy after surviving that. Um, hey, real he, quick, don't, don't bypass too much. My dad was a World War II vet as well uh, and miles. Vietnam. Nice. What, what, ship, what, what, was, what ship or what was he assigned to on Pearl Harbor? Uh, he was on a cruiser, and I don't remember the name of his ship, honestly, right now. We have some records and stuff back. And then he was all over the world after, um, after that conflict in World War II. Um, and then after 20 years of Navy, found northwestern Montana because we grew up as hunters, anglers. He was a diehard fisherman, a diehard hunter, just a love of, you know, ethical, legal hunting and enjoying the outdoors and really appreciating everything we have out there. Um, so obviously that trans, you know, transcended to my father who same thing grew up as a 
angler, a hunter, competitive trap and skeet shooter, a, a California state champion. Um, there's always been ethical, you know, legitimate use of firearms in our family for generations. Um, Quick so question. You said up in Montana. Do you ever run into the Dutton family up at Yellowstone? I mean, are they? Uh, <laughs> you, you know what? The Duttons are about five hours away. They're down near. They're down there near Bozeman. But I can't tell you guys what the Yellowstone franchise has done for our crazy state of Montana, man. It is blowing up with people moving up there, wanting to capture. You know that that kind of a vibe. Yeah, but that's kind of bad though, too, isn't it? I mean, you're getting uh, if you get too many people in there, it kind of ruins the whole aura of having Montana, you know, big sky country, you know, all that freedom and stuff, right? Yeah, there's kind of a bittersweet with it, right? A lot of us from the West Coast and and these really urbanized environments are are moving to, you know, those wide open plains, you know, big sky states. And more and more people are moving there as well because especially after COVID and, you know, this this issue of the supply chain breaking down and civil unrest, people are trying to get out and they're trying to get into areas where they might be a little safer. They might be able to self-sustain a little bit better. And there's there's a lot to that. So um, but obviously, I mean, today I'm broadcasting with you guys from my old home state of California, literally in the hometown where I grew up in, and still spend a lot of time all over the West, especially in California, educating on this cartel threat to um, illegal cannabis, what it does to the environment, what it's doing to other crimes, which we're going to dive into, guys, like human and sex trafficking, uh, slavery in these grows, um, methamphetamine, fentanyl crisis, and the human trafficking especially. And, and uh, on the advent of The Sound of Freedom, that incredible movie that just dropped around Fourth of July weekend being out, and having seen it yesterday, I realized that this cartel crime problem that both of you have fought valiantly through your careers and that I fought domestically here in California and other states, it's everywhere. You know, it's absolutely everywhere. We're not just talking about cannabis. We're not just talking about fentanyl now. Um, we're not just talking about methamphetamine and gun running. We're talking about human trafficking, the child sex slavery rings going on. And we're seeing those in illegal grow sites here in California, all over California and other states. So this is a massive transnational criminal organization threat to American values, human safety, humanity and it's a real evil out there and uh you know i think you're a little vague there john i wish you could be a little more specific i just want to jump up and say hallelujah brother i love it (laughs) hey by the way quick factoid i just saw this too latest numbers came out um i'll ask you guys see if you can guess guess how much the cartels made from human trafficking uh in 2022 uh the latest man just on the the child sex trafficking worldwide i heard 150 billion that's a b 150 billion dollars a year is what it's up to and I don't just know across that's... just across border stuff it was 13 billion dollars which it is really? wow. they're making more money from human trafficking than they are from selling dope right now i yeah, believe I think, it yeah i think the dope number is around 8 billion isn't it? yeah so no the, so you talked about and look I, I i'm a kansas farm boy so i get the whole conservation thing you know people don't realize you got to be good stewards of the land it's it's a it's finite in terms of if you want to keep growing stuff on it you know, you've got to take care of the land and uh, you just can't, you, you treat the land bad, you get bad crops, you know, then everybody suffers. But let's, so you, but how did you go from being, like you say, in Montana, but what, what brought you to California that you grew up there? And by the way, was it, where was it at? You grew up in California. What's your hometown? Yeah, I grew up in the, basically the rural, there's, there's a lot of rural kind of farming, equestrian communities about 30 miles south of San Jose, California, which as you guys know, San Jose is the tech capital hub of Silicon Valley. So that's where I grew up, but I had all these, you know, 
Henry Coast State Park and private ranches that I was growing up around and learning to hike and backpack and survive and doing all that through high school and college and having been raised since nine years old as a waterfowl hunter through my father and uncles and cousins and things like that. Um, but ironically, unlike most of my game warden colleagues that I would meet later in the academy when I went into the police, the game warden police academy <clears throat> in Napa Valley College um, in 1992, I had never met a game warden all those years hunting with my dad, which is absolutely unreal that from nine years old all the way to my early 20s, not to run into a state game warden that would check you for a hunting license and get to know what they even do. So I had no idea what a game warden was. And I had no idea that that was probably the calling I wanted to do in law enforcement. So I'm going through San Jose State University as an engineering major in the civil engineering program, looking at the ROTC program to go into a special forces uh, army career through, through the ROTC program and get my degree <clears throat> going through all of that process. When my first semester, first winter break, I'm on a backpacking trip with my best buddy of Baja racing partners in second grade. And we are in Henry Coast State Park, about 10 air miles from where I'm sitting right now, in the middle of winter after doing finals in college and backpacking through a stormy week of nobody in this park. And a game warden checked us in early morning one day at a lake 13 miles into the backcountry after a massive rainstorm where we, were ha- we had a little illegal fire going. Uh, to dry our stuff out. We were dumb college kids. We were, you know, everything was soaked, including the pack horse we took in. And this game warden thought we were poaching black-tailed deer out of season because it happens to be a really good spot for these monster deer that guys would poach. I thought he was a park ranger. He comes down in the green truck, down a hill, sneaks up on us. And when I found out he wasn't a park ranger, he was actually a game warden. I went, what's a game warden? And I actually kept him there... (laughs) for two hours bending his <laughs> ear and my eyes got as big as silver dollars. And my partner looked at me and Jeff said, what just happened? Something you are fired up. I go, I need to change what I'm doing. And no exaggeration. When I got out of the woods a week later, we were in a five week winter break. I went over and talked to the criminal justice advisor at San Jose state and unbeknownst to me. And again, this was just fortuitous and a little, I think a little divine intervention. San Jose state has one of the best criminal justice programs in the country, as well as one of the best engineering programs. And they've placed DE agents, ATF, FBI, local police, game wardens. I mean, I was able to switch majors, not miss a lick. And in that spring semester, I was doing a CJ program, moving toward wanting to be a game warden, knowing that's what I wanted to do. And I also knew I wanted to do it now. I mean, I knew the impacts to wildlife. I knew how hard it was to catch these intentional poachers, decimating species that I grew up loving and you know, trying to, trying to hunt and manage and do it properly. And never look back, and that's uh, that's how I fortunately stumbled into the job. And at 21 and a half years old, I was I was in the academy and um, put my graduate degree on hold for a while, and got shipped down to Southern California, just inland from the LA basin in the Inland Empire, Riverside County, and you know chasing gangbangers that were spotlighting animals with AK-47s coming over from LA and gillnet fish and doing some crazy takedowns, guys, as a young warden alone in a truck at night. Hey, Murph John. Hey, guys, hold on for a second. We want to tell you we're excited about this, Murph. So guess what? It's summer, right? Yeah. You're looking for something new to try? Always. Always, man. Well, you got to try this Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. It can help you fuel up fast with flavorful, nutritious, ready-to-eat meals. And in fact, we're so excited to do this. We actually went ahead and recorded the ad. Our shipment's on the way. We've got multiple shipments coming in, but we wanted to tell you about this and let you guys know what's going on. You'll save time, eat well, and guess what? Stay on track reaching your goals. 
you know, one of the things that, that I'm excited about to try this is is they come in, they're fresh, they're never frozen, and these meals are you can pre- prepare them in two minutes. You, you two minutes, seriously, two minutes. Two minutes, man. You might be back to your nap time in you know plenty of time too, yeah, man. Yo, know, the other thing too is I want to feel my best too because summer it feels like it drains you sometimes. So you can stick to your wellness goals. I'm outside still writing. I want to do some stuff like so ready to eat meals featuring high quality ingredients such as broccolini, leeks, and asparagus, guys. Veggies are good for you, so treat yourself. 34 different weekly restaurant quality options, all of them ready, like you say, Murph, in just two minutes. Yeah, and you know, I mean, we all have busy days. Sometimes we wonder if we're going to have time for lunch. Well, Factor offers lunches to go. They're made up of grain bowls and salad toppers. They're ready to eat, and the best thing is you don't even need a microwave for those. And you know, if I was doing the Tour de France like they are this while we're recording this, I'm actually watching the Tour de France and guess what these folks need? They need what I need out of this extra protein, 30 grams of protein or more per serving. Absolutely. They've even got their own snacks. And this is, uh, you know, me, man, I I love my snacks. They've got things like the apple cinnamon pancakes, bacon and cheddar egg bites, potato Mm -hmm. bacon and egg breakfast skillets. They've got cold pressed juices, shakes, smoothies, man. I can't wait for this order to get in here. You had me at bacon. All right. So this July, get factor and enjoy eating well without the hassle. Man, just simply choose your meals. Enjoy them. Fresh, flavor-packed meals delivered right to your door. Again, ready in two minutes. No prep, no mess. So head to factormeals.com slash GOC50 and use code GOC50 to get 50% off. Wow. That's code GOC50 at factormeals.com slash GOC50 to get 50% off. All right, guys. Let's get back into the story now. I got to tell you, as a as a as a former trooper, you know, um, and people, the game wardens are the same way. You're out there by yourself, right? And you, with you guys too, most of the people you face are armed. It's right. not like stop and grant, but you know, Kansas, a lot of people were armed, but you would see it. They get rifle racks in their back, but that was the thing too. Is that you know, there's always these incentives, like you were talking about early. Uh, you know, people wanting to move Montana. There was another show that drove a lot of people, and that was Nat Geo. And I actually got a chance to meet the commissioner of the Alaska State Troopers. Yes, when they put the State Troopers on Alaska State Troopers on there, so many people started moving up there. But you know, the one culture shock they had: some of these people had never been in snow, had never been in cold, and it was like, "Oh, you're in Alaska now." And now, guess what? You have to do what they call. Uh, I can't think of the name of the duty, but basically it's you are a, uh, a resident trooper. Basically, you have to move to some faraway little village and be right. there for two years. <laughs> and then yeah. these guys were going, ah, wait a minute. I think I like being close to the bar, so I'm going to quit the troopers. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, you know, brother, you hit it on the head. And, uh, you know, shows like that. And we we were, our agency actually did three years on Nat Geo with a show called Wild Justice, which was the first Game Warden reality show. You're kidding. Before. Yeah, I'm one of those guys. Oh, so. I have that. I actually have that pegged uh, to watch. I mean, I've it's part of Disney, I think the Disney Plus, the Nat Geo channel, but I actually have Wild Justice. I think I watched the first season, the first episode. Um, yeah, no, no. That, oh, cool. Cool. I'll have to go. Are you in one of those episodes? Yeah, I was. They followed uh, myself and my squad. I was a patrol lieutenant at the time, and we were starting to do the cartel marijuana raids with the sheriff's which, office. Which season and which episodes? Um, every season and just almost every other episode for three years. Um, there were there were four or five of us that were highlighted guys that were running teams on the show. And we did that show from 2007, 2008 to 2010. See, you're sandbagging um, us. You didn't tell us that. We had to pull <laughs> that out of you. you yeah, it, it, it's been a minute. You know, it's been a minute. And then uh, my partner, Wayne Saunders, who I co-host with, he's part of the whole Northwoods Law 
that New Hampshire and Maine are 10, 11 years deep and they're still doing that show. And, you know, guys like anything, um, you know, those reality shows are tough to work on, obviously, from liability issues and having film crews out with you, especially when we started doing cartel raids on Grows in the Silicon Valley foothills. That was nobody had seen that worldwide yet. Game wardens in the Silicon Valley, in the mountains just above these multi-million dollar, highly affluent home and tech companies. And we're getting in gunfights with, you know, Sinaloa-based cartel factions, growing weed, destroying wildlife, putting EPA-banned poisons in the creeks that we got to talk about because, and my book, both uh, Hidden War and even the first book, War in the Woods, was written way back in 2010, about the time that uh, the Nat Geo program, uh, our Wild Justice show, was was kind of wrapping up. Um, it was just mind-blowing stuff. And I'm very grateful to that show for putting that out worldwide that game wardens are doing this type of job and that, you know, we have wildlife crimes and environmental destruction from some of the most formidable, deadly, and and really widespread cartels on the globe that all three of us on the conversation today have dealt with directly. So um, those shows have their place. Um, you know, again, the pin is mightier than the sword and whether it's TV or podcasts or whatever. See, as a so. detective, I used to tell guys that I said, look, the pen is mightier. I will, put, I put more people in jail with a pen and an right. affidavit than I did a set yeah. of handcuffs, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. But uh, Murph doesn't get the Murph pen is mightier than the sword. That's a historical thing. You'll have to go back and read. I'll, John, to, I'll explain understand. it to you later. You got to understand. He was a trooper out there. He he went, got people gas and changed tires. So we call him triple A. <laughs> yeah, hey, which you, is, which is 24 positions better than triple X. So, you know, <laughs> anyway, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Um, but Hey, but let's, let's start setting context because you know, there's a lot of things here to unpack, but let, let's start setting context too, because when you first joined as a game warden, I mean, you had, did you have an idea about how bad it was with the cartels or what was going on up there? Or tell us about the transition from when you first started. It probably wasn't, I mean, there were some illegal grows going on for sure, right? But um, but tell us about the transition over time, how things have changed about the operations, who's involved and what the impact has been. Because as a farm boy, like you were saying, talk about the ecological impact, the environmental impact, because, uh, you know, you if you ruin land, you ruin wildlife, you ruin the ecosystem, you ruin everything around it. It, it takes years, you know, decades for that to come back. So start setting the stage for us from when you first started as a Ute, yeah. you know, game warden and what you saw and how things have changed. Yeah, no, you, you hit it spot on, Morgan, what you just said there. No, when I went into being a game warden, I did not anticipate ever dealing with drug cartels from south of the border. You know, that was the last thing on our radar nationally. And, you know, this is 92, 93, 94. Now, the Sinaloa cartels were in Riverside County. They were in San Diego County. They had just started to come across the border. And I know U.S. Forest Service was actually doing raids in the Cleveland and Tanaha Canyon and the Cleveland National Forest down there. And I remember going on a raid with them as a you know pup game warden a year out of the academy and a year out of FTO on my own down there. Um, and just blown away. The nomadic camps, you know, the bunks hidden in the manzanita, the camouflage, the seven, eight, nine, ten thousand plant grows. Had no idea that these cartels were importing the EPA banned carbofuran and metaphos, uh, poisons, insecticides that were banned from use in this country over 20 years ago by the EPA. Because EPA, when they got their technology to study this stuff, realized, hey, 
this stuff has the uh, you know a nerve agent ingredient that the Nazis actually developed uh, during their World War II chemical you know warfare program. This is not an exaggeration, and we are determining that when you put a bottle of this stuff, twelve ounces of powdered metaf- you know metaphos or carbofuran, and dilute it with six thousand gallons of water and put it on our crops, it'll keep everything off your crops, but it's still toxic. And we didn't know at the time that these cartel growers were putting a canister of that or a good portion of that canister in a five or six gallon backpack sprayer of water. Oh my God. And there's no dilution factor. So you can imagine how red hot toxic this stuff is guys. And they're spraying it all over these 11 foot cannabis plants, the bud, the flower, it's in the water. The animals are drinking it. They're getting exposed. We've seen poison growers. We've seen shallow graves. We've seen their own dogs, you know, that have ingested this stuff through their paws. And now they're in shallow graves. We've had our canines exposed and die very early deaths. We've had officers exposed to this stuff and lose their, have, you know, partial respiratory failure. We haven't had any deaths that I'm aware of, but a lot of officers have been exposed to this stuff and near fatally. Um, we didn't know any of that was going on. And hey, real you know, quick, I've got to make one quick edit. Um, I, I, I can't believe I missed this. We said you're our first like full-fledged. We had Kevin Holland. Steve, I forgot. Episode eight, my own buddy too, Mike Neal, the Arkansas fishing game guy who oh, took out yeah. the sovereign citizens. Nice. Sovereign nice. citizens. Nice. Yeah. So we, you can tell we only bring game wardens on who are studs. That's why we can only find <laughs> two and a half of you. <laughs> it, 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 well, it is, you know, it is pretty unorthodox. You know, when you think about, you know, everything Steve, you were doing on the Pablo hunt, right? And going way, way out of country to to get that, that it all actually would start affecting wildlife and game wardens would become drug agents. But it really isn't, I don't even really consider it, it, it a war on drugs. I think it's a war on public, you know, to protect public safety and a war on environmental crime and decimating, you know, our public health and safety through you know, the danger these drugs pose for health and human safety, but also the environmental impacts. And it's all integrated, I think, into just a whole wholesome, healthy kind of America, you know, for lack of a better word. There's a much bigger impact that when you're fighting Pablo and, and his cartels and the cocaine trade and everything in South America, and we're fighting cannabis here in, say, California, and now we're, de- we're dealing with the fentanyl problem, which we know is coming from Sinaloa and Jalisco New Generation. They're all involved because that's- Oh, no, 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 no. Ask Mexico. They don't have a fentanyl problem, right, Steve? What Wasn't it the president hugs, not drugs, you know, and, yeah. and uh, oh, thugs, yeah. not bullets? Yeah. So. President yeah, Senator Dan Crenshaw called him out. I mean, they had a Tijuana bust one day, and I actually highlighted on my social media, two million fentanyl pills, a bunch of meth in Tijuana. On the same blurb, president comes out down there and says, uh, yeah, we don't have a cartel problem or produce fentanyl, and you guys, it's, it's your problem, America. And so- What's going on there? I mean, read between the lines. But the bottom line is, this thing is so pervasive everywhere, and 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 game wardens have to be involved now because there is an environmental impact. They're going to run across this in the woods, and you know what, uh, Morgan, to your point, being a trooper, um, California Highway Patrol is equivalent to you know what you were as a trooper in your state, and California. I mean, we're interdicting this stuff on the roads. We're doing massive drug seizures on the roads. We're doing human trafficking seizures. We're doing interdiction patrols with our canines as game wardens on these remote highways, say in Northern California, as we're watching the Asian Hmong and and Mexican cartels just U-Haul this tainted dope, this tainted cannabis daily to, you know, every state in the nation through Northern California to start the hubs out east where you guys are at. And this stuff isn't stopping. And I know we're going to jump into why the laws are failing later on, but I can dive into that. But national problem, um, it's all about environmental protection. It's all about public safety and keeping people healthy. 
And we have to look at it, I think, as a country and as a national priority. And I know you guys have been singing those praises for decades, oh, yeah. as I have. Hey, let's let's real quick before we get too far down the line, let's go back and talk about from when you first came on. Because, see, now you're acting Now you're acting as a chemist. You're acting, like you say, as a civil engineer. You're looking at the the uh, the uh, ecological damage. But when from when you first started, how long did it take before you, the things you're talking about now, about uh, the spraying of uh, these chemicals on there and these things are happening? How long? long did it take for that to start becoming prevalent in terms of your work? Was that a year in, two years in, five years in? It was quite a ways in. I started in 92. And like I said, I saw my first grow going on a raid with Forest Service down in Southern California, but it was just an eradication raid. And it was more like mind-blowing, eye-opening. I'm just here along for the ride with my Forest Service buddies. And DEA was down there, Steve, of all people. We had DEA agents. We had the uh, DCEP coordinator where you guys were funding, starting to fund the states you know, through the DCEP program. And we would later, as a MET team here in California, you know, get a big chunk of DCEP money, thankfully, to DEA. Um, well, uh, we also have year. a rule. You have to define acronyms. So you've just said DSET. You said MET. Um, so let's 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 yeah, define some acronyms. The fund is that that statewide fund that DEA would support. You know, out of federal funds for each state to go and do cartel marijuana stuff. You know, eradicate plants, arrest bad guys, do some environmental restoration, things like that. And uh, the MET team, which we're going to get into in the hidden war. The newest book goes into that is when I was able to co-found and then lead the marijuana enforcement team, which was the first tactical team of game wardens dedicated to fighting these drug cartels and trespass growers as a mission, leaving patrol for standard duty of what we would traditionally do, the hunting and fishing stuff. Um, and that was historical. There had been a team dedicated to doing that on the game warden front nationally when we formed the pilot program in 2013 for MET. Um, we formed a sniper unit, advanced canines, and that's all we did was Was Met these. your Metro and was it Metro enforcement team? Because that's what well, Murph ran. Yeah, the marijuana enforcement team is marijuana. what we called it. Marijuana enforcement team and Delta and team. DSEP was, was the domestic cannabis suppression and eradication program. So Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Common spelling. Acronyms. Government's good about acronyms. I mean, we got an acronym for every we have an acronyms for acronyms. Yeah, and sadly, Morgan, we get into rote memory and we just start throwing them out. So I'm, I'm glad you I was in a couple that. of meetings. You get, especially Steve, you know this too. When you get clearances and stuff, people talk about programs of this. Somebody was in a meeting one day, they threw out an acronym, and I, I had to say, I said, I have no idea what does that stand for. And the other guy goes, I got no idea either. We spent a half hour trying to figure out exactly what this, everybody was using it. Nobody <laughs> knew what it meant, you know? Uh, there, we just, we, we won. Won what? I don't know, but whatever it was, the acronym says we won. But, Damn. um, but let's let's talk about that too because I think that's the other thing too is people had this still uh, belief or vision is that this is the same what we're dealing with today is the same thing we were dealing with twenty years ago when we talked about Sensimea and Maui Wowie and you know people and that's what I'm saying because some of the discussions we've had and, and folks out there listening we're not proselytizing what we're doing is we, we want to give you facts the THC levels of what we're talking about twenty years ago thirty years ago when you're talking about 1992. These things are radically different than what we're talking about today. I mean, th just even the evolution of the THC content of marijuana right. has changed along with the business models and what they're doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's not, And it's not only the THC content now, it's the toxic poisons and insecticides and rodenticides that are put on these cannabis in illegal grows. And um, I'm going to use California as an example. Uh, when we I mean, you know, regardless of where you sit on the can on the cannabis continuum, pro use, 
against whatever the case may be, legal market, not legal market. Um, the bottom line is we want to keep people safe from a youth and, you know, a health and human safety standpoint. So we don't want to see these banned toxics on any cannabis that's in the legal market, right, wrong, or indifferent. But unfortunately, in California, and we got to remember, guys, California, I consider the weed state of the world because we're one of only six Mediterranean climates on the globe, which means just like California, Napa Valley wine, where my academy was, we grow some of the world's best wine. We grow some of the world's best weed. We just do because we have the climate for it. So outdoor grows, indoor grows. It's 24-7. It's all year long. Um, And as we started to learn about the illegal cannabis trade and then the regulated cannabis trade, because in 2016, we regulated in California through Proposition 64. And the you guys idea love of, your propositions, by the way. I've seen oh, more propositions in I California know. than I've seen at a political convention in D.C. Yeah, good luck with me keeping up with any of them. You know, I mean, obviously Prop 64, you know, I, I got that one ingrained like a bad acronym just because uh, that was right. You know, that was three years into having our team and we had people within the agency and we had naysayers outside going, okay, look, man, we're going to regulate this stuff. We're going to water it down on the crime front. We're going to regulate and get permits for all these growers. And you guys are going to be out of a job, man. The cartels are done. And we just laughed at him and said, um, <laughs> yeah. okay. I said, let, let, How many let, let's times see. What- and what year was that? What year did they say the cartels were going to be out of business? That was 2016. And I retired in 2018, and now I'm going to tell a story five years after that because I've been operational now with Siskiyou, and we've done some documentaries I'm going to talk about in a minute up in Siskiyou County um, and what we saw. And what I'm hearing from all my teammates, because I can talk about it outside of agency, is exactly the opposite happened. And one of the jobs, being the lieutenant and the leader of this team, guys, part of my job other than running missions and running training and, and working all those logistics out all year long was 20, 30% was doing outreach and education, like what we're doing today. And I would do these PowerPoint presentations and go around the state and talk to legislatures, lobbyists, everybody that was wanting to regulate and just saying, hey guys, we see regulation coming. We know it's going to happen. But if you're going to regulate cannabis, you got to regulate it correctly. And what you can't do is you can't water down the outdoor trespass grow penalties. You can't water down penalties against the cartels that are doing this illegally. Um, because we do have EPA banned poisons that are a felony to possess in the country currently in our penal code. Like if you have a bottle of carbofuran, it's a felony to have it in the U.S. because it's that deadly, but it's still produced in Tijuana. It's still imported from the third world countries. And that's what these, what the Sinaloa and the Jalisco knew, that's what they're bringing up to do on indoor grows now and the outdoor grows. And the problem is when in order to get Prop 64 to pass in California, legislators did exactly opposite of what I had presented and asked them not to do for years of presentations, knowing it was going to happen. They watered outdoor trespass growing or indoor illegal growing from a felony to a misdemeanor. And for a juvenile offender, and there's a lot of cartel young apprentice that we would arrest that were armed and dangerous at 14, 15, 16 years old with their uncles and their fathers or their, you know, plaza boss owners of the grow site, an infraction. So these kids would have a more of a penalty from a seatbelt ticket driving without one, right? Then, and they're in an illegal grow with a gun, putting carbofuran all over, putting punji pits and booby traps out on our public lands in a stone's throw of the affluent Silicon Valley, children's science camps, educational, you know, outdoor recreational sites. No joke. And we're seeing this. And so what did the Cardells do when we regulated in 2016? They went, a misdemeanor? <laughs> Bring it on. Who's going to prosecute for a misdemeanor? How are we going to go to a jury trial? And if we get oh, you caught, got people stealing a thousand dollars worth of stuff at a time and walking out of a store and nobody exactly more. Thank you. Them. 
Thank you. Exactly. So that's uh, don't that's get me ex- started on. Hey, real quick too. You mentioned politicians because I had this experience testifying before Congress a couple times, and then looking at some of the stuff they did. There's always this disconnect between the level of knowledge they have and the uh, regulations and the legislation they want to uh, promulgate. Steve, that means to create. Steve, you know that's a big word for yeah, Steve. Three. Anytime you get more than two acronyms, I gotta I gotta explain it to Steve. So, uh, but you know, but 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 I'm curious. Go back. Why, after all of the outreach and the awareness you did, and part of that too is to inform the legislators. Here's the dangers. Here's the reality, so that you pass the correct laws. Why do you think it is they did the exact opposite? Because it seems to me they conflated legalization and personal use. You know, people just you know grandma and grandpa, whatever, doing it, they conflated that with what the cartels were doing. It it all came down to political agendas. I mean, the bottom line is there was no logical reason to, unless the, to, to push votes and get it passed. I'm sure that certainly helped. Obviously, if you decriminalize it in uh, a proposal to legalize, that's going to that's gonna sell it a little cleaner. I mean, obviously, if you're going to regulate and allow legal growers to produce, distribute, and sell cannabis under a structured regulation system for environmental purity and tracking and taxation and all that, but you still have a, you still have felonies out there, then you're going, well, wait a minute, why do we have felonies if it's legal? That just doesn't wash. And I think to sell the bill, to sell Prop 64 to pass, that had to be it. And I always say, without disparaging anybody, but looking at politics in general, I said, when you're looking at the revenue of cannabis or revenue of anything and you're regulating for personal gain political gain uh revenue generation on something like black market cannabis then obviously public safety in my opinion and environmental purity and environmental resource protection is not your priority there's something else going on there and exactly what we predicted morgan and steve this was really alarming especially you know when you look at the cartels that you guys have worked you know outside of this country. And now we're fighting the domestic cartel fight inside this country. When you basically incentivize them by deregulating and making it a misdemeanor and infraction and knowing that if they do get their grow rated, they're going to lose their plants. And that's probably it. You know, um, when you're at sanctuary state status and you, you're being told not to work with ice and, you know, and CBP and everything else, and we can't put these deportable felons back in Mexico and we can't even prosecute them and we're not going to run through that. That's exactly what happened after Prop 64 passed. So long-windedly, but get to the juxta of this whole thing. So what we're dealing with now in California, five years after Prop 64, is a black market that is way worse than it was when I was fighting it on the ground with my teammates uh, before Prop 64 was enacted. And now we have the Mexican and also the Asian cartels all over California and peppered throughout other states, not only on the, not only on the, uh, marijuana trade, but the human trafficking, fentanyl, they're working all of that. But on the marijuana continuum, they know that they can just outproduce any enforcement that's out there trying to stop them right now. And now we're playing catch up and they're, the black market is off the hook. We're selling to the Midwest. They're selling to the Eastern seaboard. This stuff has poisons on it. Um, the money is still there because they're not under a regulation structure where they're taxed and paying. That, I was about to, I was, that was waiting for that. See, that's the thing. It's there just it like cigarettes. It's the tax. Yep. Why do people buy illegal weed? Because it's not being taxed 
to the extent that legal stuff is and going through you know the normal channels where you have to identify yourself why is there st- if if legalization works and i'm just asking this as a broad question if legalization works then why do we still have a growing and burgeoning black market yeah because it's how we've structured legalization as structured right now it doesn't work you know when you look at how BATF, the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms groups regulate the wine industry, the alcohol industry, or cigarettes and tobacco. You know, we don't have cannabis regulated that way nationally where there's a uniform standard. What we have is state by states regulating, and they're all generating permits where they have to have inspections for environmental purity, what water they're using, and it costs a grower in California minimum 50000 sometimes in you know excess of a quarter million dollars, depending on the size of your farm, uh, in permits to get that farm even operational. And then the infrastructure I have, and we've interviewed them for some of our latest documentaries. We talked about, we did this with Daily Callers, Narcofornia. I co-hosted that with uh, Jorge Ventura um, just last, uh, late last summer up in Siskiyou County and watching these indoor grow sites now on private land, hoop houses, and these cartels not even going deep into the woods anymore. They don't have to. They literally, guys, are on a rural track of land. It's house by house, by property by property. And granted, they're in remote areas, but they're not hiding deep in the forest. And you're talking 10, 15,000 hoop houses, all illegal, all can- you know, cartel cannabis on the Asian and the Mexican front. And one, maybe 1% to 2% of those grows are ever going to get interdicted by the limited number of law enforcement brothers up there that are working it diligently. And all they're going to do is destroy plants. They're probably not going to prosecute anybody. No. And well, these guys mis- are just going to go. It's a misdemeanor. Holy yeah. cow! It's a mis- Hey, by the way, name the last time a cartel. Name the last time a cartel went down and applied for permits to uh, have the county come out, exactly. the state come out and check their grow. Exactly. So everyone has crawled back into the black market. We've had kind of a, a reverse backlash in California, and California is, I think, the worst example of how to regulate. Yet we are the best weed state, and we should be a template for the world that's thinking of regulating cannabis and how not to do it. And I hate to say that because we we could have done it so much better. Um, as an example for not only the nation, but the world, especially through the drought issues. And, you know, we just came out of a century long drought because we finally got water relief in California. We had a drought in Montana, you know, water. Now I consider like the most precious commodity on the globe, guys, water is being depleted at exponential levels. Um, it's really our white liquid gold, if you will. And the amount of water that illegal cannabis consumes in California was mind blowing. I mean, we're talking billions and billions of gallons of water over ye- over the years. Um, working with uh, Bill Bodner, Steve, who uh, is the SAC now, you know, Bill down in Los Angeles. Yep. Um, he actually came on our Thin Green Line podcast, able to get a DEA SAC that actually pursued us to get and be able to talk and get green lit and tell some stories when I'd never seen that. And we talked about DEA's concern for the environmental impacts and starting to see what we were seeing and how you sell this thing is, you know, don't make it a war on drugs, man. Make it a war on environmental crime and water loss. And here we are in our biggest drought. And Bill's telling me, John, you know, we just did 255 search warrants in North LA County up in the Palmdale area on all those illegal grow hoop houses after five years of regulation and 1.8 million gallons of water per day being stolen just just in North LA County, Riverside and San Bernardino County, as just one example. In drought, when everybody's on drought rationing and farmers don't have underground water to you know, do their crops, they don't have any water for their livestock. Literally, traditional farmers in Siskiyou County, the most pristine area of California, bordering Oregon under the beautiful Mount Shasta, these 
farming communities and ranching communities that were so pure from a community standpoint, they're leaving, they're done. The Mongs and Asians have come in, guys, and stolen all their water, you know, threatened them at gunpoint. Quick question about that. Um, where has been the rise of these environmental groups that protest everything, the logging industry and everybody else? Have they joined in to say, to to support you guys, to say this is ruining the environment, this is raping the environment? Where are all of these other groups that want to defend the environment? Are they involved in this? Or you know, they- Morgan, that's a great question. And ironically, very little, very little. The groups that are the most outraged are conservation groups. Conservation groups from everything from California Deer Association, Rocky Mountain Elk, Ducks Unlimited, conservation groups that you know are all about hunting ethically and legally and putting more habitat out there, keeping the species balanced. Those are the people that are most outraged. And we have some 5013Cs and some foundations coming up that are that are all about, you know, removal of you know illegal marijuana on public lands because of water and environmental impacts. But, you know, I don't hear a lot from Sierra Club. I don't hear a lot from animal rights groups denouncing this type of stuff. And it's not, I'm not disparaging it. I mean, I'd like everybody to get involved. Well, I'm wondering, where's the outrage? I mean, if we're, I mean, they will, you will see groups, and I know this in California too, you will see groups go to war over, what was it the one time it was this snail that was impacted? Um, and, And or something, they will go to war over that, but yet, but when you are, and I use the word rape deliberately, when, but you, when you are raping the land and raping the environment, people are suspiciously silent. Yeah, it, it is, and I, I don't know where, where that falls on, and it's one of these things is, I just try to put the message out wide, guys. I put the message out wide, and this is the thing, I've literally, I mean, I've got pictures in my PowerPoint of a 400-pound female sow black bear that goes into a grow site just below Yosemite National Park. And this was like a 28, 2015, 2016 case. And I can't tell you the disgusting wildlife loss, poison cases, and the examples we see in these grows. And, you know, you're not going to get a lot of people fired up that aren't directly impacted by the cartels that might be cannabis users or think, oh, uh, just say no, Nancy Reagan, war on drugs. We're back in the 80s. And I've actually had the first edition of Hidden War had a cannabis leaf on it in front of the operator. And in the this is a second, well, a third printing now. This is a second edition updated. Um, I had to take the cannabis leaf off the cover. I talked to my publisher and said, people see a cannabis leaf and they automatically think this is, a, we're going back to the 80s. This is so outdated. It's been overplayed. It's not an issue. And they don't read past that image to realize this is not an anti-cannabis book. This is what we just said, anti-environmental crime protection of public safety, know that these cartels are embedded, know that any cannabis you get from these cartels is a slow poison and that they're not only involved in that, they're involved in everything else we talked about and they're embedded. They're not just coming across the border. Um, so to your point, Morgan, yeah, I, I've had animal rights people in tears looking at these dead black bears that go in and the growers put out a, a tuna can and a lot of tuna cans around their grow site before that you can even get to the plants. And there's a little oil left in there and they put just a couple tablespoons or just a dot of carbofuran in all these cans to basically suck the animals in before they can get to the plants. And all a black bear, a 400 pound black bear licking up a little bit of drop of carbofuran within 10 minutes is going to have a frothy mouth, nervous system's going to shut down and they're going to have a horrendously painful death and be dead at the bottom of a tree. And when you have a picture of a dead black bear and her little baby cub that's 50 pounds, also exposed, mom's dead. Now the cub climbs up in a tree and dies, you know, up in a branch above the mother. And I show that picture, people freak out. 
So if you're a hunter and you and you see an animal die that way, you're outraged. That's not the way you humanely harvest an animal for food, right? If you're an animal rights person and you hate hunting and you're all about the environment, you're in tears because that animal died such a painful death. And that's what makes this issue so uniform. That's what brings everybody together. I got a question for Murph. Murph, how many times in your career did you hear the phrase and people said, guys, don't focus on marijuana. Marijuana is a victimless crime. Who's the victim here? There you go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's that's what I wanted to bring out here. Anybody that's under the belief that just simply because we're legalizing marijuana here in the United States, that that's going to stop the criminal cartel organizations, especially in Mexico, but also Colombia, uh, from producing marijuana either across the border or here in the United States. That's a very naive point of view. This is a perfect example. You see what's going on out there. The, the waste of, of natural resources is what really, I'm not a tree hugger. I grew up hunting and fishing like you. Right. But it just pisses you off. And the other thing is uh, uh, the fact that all of the marijuana that's being out in these rogue grows like this is tainted with poisons. So people are getting their, their weed out there, not realizing that you are slowly poisoning yourself. But but I love the way you've put this because the governments came in, the states came in, oh, we're going to legalize it, but then they tax the shit out of it. Yeah. You know, and because it's all about the revenue. That's This has yeah. nothing to do with public health. This is all about financially supporting the states, you know, and, and eventually the feds are going to, the, the federal government's going to flip over on this crap. Uh, just, you know, I, you know, we're going to say this again at the, at the uh, end of this interview, but People need to get your book and read this and open your freaking eyes. This was, I was a cop for 38 years and I had no idea of the problems, the extent of the problems until I read your book here. And that's why it was so important to get you on the podcast here on Game of Crimes. Well, and let me throw in one more thing too. I was on the community policing committee uh, for the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Right after they legalized marijuana in Colorado and Washington, we brought people in from there. We brought in people from the Dutch police to talk about this. And look, just when you legalize it stuff too, people don't realize the number of drugged driving deaths shot through the roof in Washington. John Batiste, who's the colonel up there, the superintendent, I know him. They were dealing with issues, same thing with Colorado. And then the Dutch police, hmm. if you go over to Amsterdam now and you look at it, they're they're really tired of it. They've started recriminalizing the use of marijuana in certain areas. It's like you used to be able to leave these cafes and walk down the street can't do that anymore. The the red light district, wow. they're regulating that. And they found all of these places where legalization has happened. Many places have gone back to recriminalize it because you know what? It's to your point. It's the second, third, fourth, fifth order effects. You legalize it. But let me ask you a question. And because I want to dive into more of this, because this is a, the, we do a lot of master classes. This is a master class on the hidden war, like you say, what, what's really going on out there. But, but this whole thing about how uh, the legalization is going to get away from this in your estimation, or just if you can kind of, you know, put your thumb to the wind right, and give us a right. swag, right? Ever since they legalized marijuana, has the prevalence of illegal grows gone down or gone up in relation to the legalization? Oh, completely, completely gone up, completely gone up. And, Why? And well, again, two reasons. One, what happened is and, and I got a, I got a backstory this a little bit, Morgan. That's a good question. No, no, that's and, set and, context. Set context. Yeah, and it's going to set what what Steve set up is this this uh, this kind of naivete, if you will, of what the public thinks when it comes to marijuana, right, Steve? They don't see all the peripheral stuff that goes in that these cartels and basically any black market cannabis group, and they could be Mexican cartels, they could be the Asians, they could be um, the, the you know the old mom and pop medicinal hippie growers that have now just gone dark because of taxation. Um, for, those aren't those guys aren't putting banned poisons on their stuff, but they're still doing it illegally. Um, 
So basically, it's gone way up for a couple of reasons, Morgan, and this is why. When we started the regulation process in Cali, as an example, I mentioned the cost of these permits and how many agency oversights you have to have to have a legal grow. And keep in mind, we had a contingent of non-cartel growers in Northern California, up in the Emerald Triangle. We're talking Humboldt, Del Norte, Mendocino County, uh, all of those weed states that you hear so much about for, for the last 40 years. And these are the white growers. You know, these are people that are still trespassing, maybe on forest land. They're not using banned poisons. They don't want to hurt anybody. They're not gunning for each other. But they were doing all their medicinal marijuana under Prop 215 completely illegally, but selling it commercially throughout the country. No tax, strictly a cash business, some of them making millions and millions of dollars. We convinced those people to come out of the dark and get into the light and said, hey, it's, it's going to be, you know, hugs now and not handcuffs. I was the first law enforcement officer, guys, to go in as part of the marijuana enforcement team, dressed in my gear, to talk to a growers association meeting where they had all these illegal growers, hundreds of them in Mendo County and up in Fort Bragg and Santa Cruz. And I walk in and you see these men and women going, what's he here for? He's looking at our license plates. He's going to work. If you'd had a set of balls, the first thing you would have said, John, is you would have got up there and said, you're all under arrest. And then say, I'm just joking. (laughs) Guys, it was no joke. I'm not even kidding you guys. It was freaking nuts. I walked in and you could hear a pin drop and I'm on a panel and Hezekiah (laughs) Allen, who was a Humboldt grower, a real good one and illegal uh, for years. And now he's coming out to be legal. And he was the head of the California Growers Association and he was heading up a panel. And I was the third and last speaker on this panel. And I'll never forget. I mean, I thought this is going to be a rough day, man. I had my little canine, my yellow lab. I got my computer. I'm sitting at the table. I go, everybody breathe. I'm not here to arrest anybody. I'm going to show some pictures. I'm going to tell a story and we're going to communicate. Then we're going to fire up a doobie. Oh man, and and we're, and we're I'm going to answer some questions. You know, you guys, you you have a grace period of like six months to a year, and this is going to happen, right? So we want everybody dress you for success, do it right. Uh, you know, get into that. You're not cartel. We want to work on that. And quite honestly, after I did those first presentations, I had men and women in tears, outraged. You know, some of the environmental hidden growers that were illegal, but they weren't environmentally destructive. They conserved water. They love their wildlife. They want to live off the land. And I had some monstrous grow operator managers and owners from multi-million dollar farms in Northern California. As I was leaving that presentation and loading my truck and loading my dog in my patrol truck, 20 people come swarm into my truck. And I went, uh-oh, here's the ambush. You know, I've left my presentation, Steve, this is going to get Western. And they're like, hey, 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 Lieutenant, They're giving me business cards and they're going, you know what? I have a ton of workers and a ton of infrastructure and this, these cartel grows and the mess they leave and the banned poisons you just showed us, the dead wildlife, it's fucking bullshit. You need workers to do cleanup reclamation. You're talking about the reclamation cleanup you guys are doing on the Met team, on your team. I know you're not doing enough of it. I know you're, you know, completely uh, understaffed. I mean, they were actually getting on board to help us out. Well, that was very short-lived. Not that they didn't want to help. They actually were going to register to be legal. And then they saw the cost. And then they saw how long it took. And then they saw the red tape. And some of these growers had put a hundred to $200,000 to 10 or 11 agencies to get their permits. And a year later, still didn't have it, their operation greenlit. And you know this was, right, wrong, or indifferent, illegal underground. This was their way of life for 20 years. So Humboldt County went from like, you know, 90% of their growers wanting to regulate down to less than 10 by the time 
they got through the process. And then because of the misdemeanor, Morgan, the cartels went, okay, California is a wide open state. Disneyland just wide open. Disneyland free pass. E-tickets ride free all day. Wasn't there a Netflix series about Humboldt County and all the murders there up in was. Humboldt County? Murder Mountain. Four Murder episode. Mountain. You're going to see clips of our team operating in that in that documentary series. Actually, it's it's eerie and and again, what was cool about Murder Mountain, guys? I'm glad you brought that up, Morgan. Murder Mountain was the first illegal cannabis related type show of the Emerald Triangle in California, but it got into missing persons, human trafficking, the illegal slavery, child sex, women disappearing. And that place is literally the, you know, it's like that Bermuda Triangle, Bermuda Triangle. of missing persons. It's but still you know is. why that stuff happened? I will tell you, this is why the, the, the illegal growers were conservationists, you know, and these cartels aren't, you know why? Because it's, they live there. This is their community. Illegal as right. it was, Thank it's their you. community. Exactly. They have exactly. to, they have to, guess what? They have to use that land next year and the year after. Mm-hmm. This is how they make their living. The cartels, what do they care about? Harvest as much as they can, make as much money as they can. And if yep. they got to go exploit another region, that's what they'll do. They don't, they don't live on the land, so they don't care. Well, they don't care and they, and they don't care about health and human safety and they don't care about poisoning and killing people. And it's a cash thing. And I look, I, I describe it this way, cartels and Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're just very efficient and very violent in a standard corporate business model, right? It's like if fentanyl is the thing that they can make the most money on and a dirty lab at every third pill in a dirty lab in Mexico is going to kill a 16 year old kid in the Silicon Valley for pain relief on an injured knee from a volleyball game, which has happened to relatives and friends I know personally. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, inner city poverty. We're talking about affluent communities on this fentanyl deal uh, dying, you know, daily. And it's just, it, it's, it's that cost benefit analysis. Hey man, if, if I can go outdoors and, you know, make 5 million cash on a 10,000 plant grow, then I'm going to do it. And now that California is incentivized by watering down to misdemeanors and I can go on private land that I can drive my truck to, and I can put four hoop houses out and it's probably less than 5% that that's going to get rated, but I'll put 20 of them out. I might lose three, but now I'm going to get more money with more tainted weed concentrated with less with less overhead for my people because I can do it much easier I'm going to do it or I'm going to go to human trafficking and I'm going to use up that person 20 times a day and I'm going to make that money 20 times a day rather than you know what I'm going to get for 1 pound of weed is one sale and it's it's just these guys are brutal but they're brilliant in their business you know well, they, one thing one thing that everybody needs to understand is these are poly criminal organizations they don't they are not just marijuana grow and distribution organizations and they're not just kidnapping or human trafficking or fentanyl they're poly criminal so wherever they can make a buck if it's counterfeit clothes that's what they're going to do to make a buck and and to get back over to Morgan's Morgan's previous remark about in Denmark well what happened is is uh, and if you just, uh, you know, we tell our listeners, don't believe what any of us or our guests tell you is the absolute truth. Go do your own research and you make up your own mind about after you do your research. Don't te- don't let anybody, us or the media or the politicians, tell you what to think. But what happened in Denmark is organized crime saw an open market. And again, they're poly criminals. So they had they, they came in and said, well, hell, we're going to go in on the on the legalization of weed over here. And the same token, we're going to do a little human trafficking, a little cocaine smuggling, a little art stealing, whatever the case might be. And that's how things get out of control. So it's not just as simple as everybody would like you to think it is that you could just, okay, we're going to legalize weed and you go in these special little shops and smoke it and you're going to be just fine. That's all bu- bullshit. And one other thing I wanted to point out, we had a guest on just a few episodes ago, Ramon Mendoza, known as Mundo, former member of the Mexican Mafia. 
And he told us basically what you just told us, John, when it came to the legislation in California, that the politicians want to be such do-gooders, they don't do their own research. So they, they, they lighten the laws associated, in your case, with the marijuana, illegal grows and so forth by the Mexican cartels in the United States. But in, in their case, they were making it lighter on them to get away with things in the prison, to give them more privacy, which allowed them to conduct more crimes. I mean, Mundo even told us he committed six murders in prison that, that they could never convict him of because they couldn't come up with the evidence. So, you know, I want to say, and I'm going to throw up in the back of my throat when I say this, I want to say that the, the politicians out there have good intentions, bullshit, but they, they're not getting the full facts. Do your damn research before you do all these things that are going to have negative impact, especially on innocent people who think, that I don't get, you know, personally, I know this is going to surprise everybody when you hear me say this, and some of our listeners have heard me say this before. If you want to smoke weed, I don't really care. Right. That was never DEA's job was to go after the weed smokers. We were going after the cartels and the big dealers and the distributors and the people that were poisoning it. Now we're seeing that they're lacing it with fentanyl, these outlawed toxic chemicals. Uh, I really don't care, but you need to know what you're getting yourself into because you're putting chemicals in your system that you're never going to recover from. Hey, yeah, trivia, that- trivia question for you both. All right. Um, Pablo Escobar, first drug he started selling, Steve. Weed. Weed. George Young, first drug he started selling. <laughs> Weed. Yeah. yeah. Now, what, what do they say? Marijuana is a gateway drug and marijuana for the cartels like a like a gateway uh, market. Business. It's <laughs> yeah, a, it's exactly. a gateway, what, You know what it is? But it's here, the reason I brought that up, if we come back, because we actually interviewed George Young, episode number two. We got his last interview before uh, George passed away. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.